You're listening to the Redemption Hill Church podcast from Tallahassee, Florida. For more information, visit our website at rh-church.com. Hey, Pastor Chad here. I'm so glad you've taken the time to listen. We're currently studying verse by verse through the book of Acts. Among other things, we'll see the mission, the persecution, and the expansion of the church. Now, time for this week's message. All right, thank you guys. All right, fifth graders and under, if you guys want to go to Children's Church, Mackenzie's going to MC, maybe you're going to lead the way. All right, if you guys have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open up to Acts chapter 12. And if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to borrow one or have one, we got some in the back pews. Mr. George is kind of heading back that way, so if you'd like a Bible and need one, just raise your hand. He'll make sure to get you one by all means. And if you don't have a Bible, that is yours to keep. Um, so Acts, Acts chapter 12. And we've been going through the book of Acts now um, for several weeks. And to me, it's, it's a, an exciting book to study and to talk about and read through and pray through. And there's all sorts of neat stories. There's a lot of familiar characters. And, uh, um, and hopefully we're learning some stuff along the way. And, and hopefully along the, the journey, we, we're also able to kind of just grab some real practical stuff. Um, last week... When we finished up chapter 11, we talked about kind of the birth of the church of Antioch. And really what we've seen in the last um, few messages coming out of Acts is how this, um, this great commission that Jesus gave the disciples before he ascended to heaven at Acts 1-8, when Jesus said to go to Jerusalem first, which is kind of the home base that was, that was their comfort area. That's where they were they were hanging out already. So Jesus says, you go back to go to Jerusalem and then go to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so in the last few chapters, really, we've, we've seen this um, transition away from Jerusalem. We've seen how they've gone and they've, they've, they've moved. And, and really what sparked the movement, what really caused many of uh, the followers of Jesus to leave Jerusalem was Stephen. Right? Stephen, one of the first deacons, if you will, one of those first seven that were chosen to, to help the disciples kind of do the day-to-day deeds of the church, more specifically with the widows. But then um, as, as they began to serve and they began to use their talents and abilities, uh, they began to see that they had other talents and abilities beyond just the serving. And, and Stephen was one of those guys. Stephen was one of the, the men that, that started the Meals on Wheels program, and then the Lord used them, and he began to go into synagogues and teach and tell people about Jesus, and they got the Sanhedrin upset and bothered, and, and, and then to the point where Stephen was, was killed, he was, he was stoned. And see, it was that, that, um, that thing where what, what the people meant for bad, for to, a, a way to kind of shut up the crowd, a way to stop this movement, ultimately was adding fuel to this fire. It was like throwing that gasoline on top. And, and so persecution began to come, and, and, and a lot of the Christians left. And really what, it wasn't the disciples. The disciples kind of stayed close to home. They stayed inside Jerusalem for the most part. 
But it was this, these um, Hellenistic Jews. It was the, the Greek-speaking Jews that, that were the ones that primarily left. They were the same kind of um, sect as Stephen. And so they began to go out, and then we see how they go into Samaria. And we, we talk about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and we've talked about, you know, all these things. And, and then we get Peter back in the picture, and Peter goes, and he talks to this, this centurion, Cornelius. Remember the whole dream and all these animals, and we talk about that. And, and then we begin to see kind of the, the Gentile day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon those in Cornelius' home, and how it really began to open things up. And kind of what you have is the same, generally speaking, the same time some of that stuff is going on over there, you have what we talked about here, this church in Antioch. And, and, and that's what we talked about last week. And it was so fascinating to me as we, as we consider those, that, those verses 19 through 30, that, that it was just the, the regular people. It wasn't, they, they, weren't, they didn't have the paid professionals that went, they set up a tent and they were preaching, and, and that was what was creating this revival. It was simply people that had, they were fleeing for safety, but it wasn't, they were, they didn't go into hiding. They didn't run, put on disguises, and, and just keep their mouths quiet so no one knew who they were or what they believed. They just, they just left and went to a different town, but wherever they went, there was consistent life. They were going, they were telling people, they were, they were sharing their faith. And so you, you see that initially as they left, they left with the mindset that they were just kind of talking to the Jews. But along this journey, they just realized that, that, that this gospel, this Jesus, it was much bigger than just one nationalistic or religious group. And so they just began to tell everybody about it. And so we see this, really the birth of really the first Gentile church in Antioch. Now, and, and last week I tried to get us to, to, in our minds today, for us to give it somewhat of a comparison. Um, I, I try to encourage us to think about th- that Antioch would be like Las Vegas to us today. It was a very wicked, um, pagan city but in a, in a melting pot and all these things. But, but God used it. And, and one of the things that we tried to hit home last week, really the, the driving point that I wanted us to, if we left with nothing last week, was to grab a hold of this idea that, um, that our beliefs fuel our behavior. Right? Our beliefs fuel our behavior. And, and what we meant by that was, listen, those Christians, those people who, who showed up in Antioch, they believed they believed in Jesus. I mean, to the point, like, they, they couldn't be quiet about him, right? And they had to tell others about it. And all that stuff that was generated, that revival that was generated, that, that, that um, birthing of this new church, it was all done through just regular people. And, and we have to understand, I think it becomes increasingly more and more obvious in the day and age that we live in. In, in the country even that we live in. I think that we've seen so much crazy happen, right? I mean, so much crazy. And, you know, one of the things we see now, I, I guess, probably more, more so Thursday in our Dine and Dash, a couple of the adults, we were, as we were setting up and preparing before and then kind of carried over after, was this whole, like, transgender stuff and how, like, it's blown up, like, how quickly it's come. Like, you know, the same-sex marriage discussion um, was one of those discussions. It was a, a thing that had been 
kind of years in the making. But this like transgender movement is just boom. It, like it's just blown up, right? And so we live in a day in an age that like our Christian beliefs um, aren't celebrated. They, they, they aren't encouraged. In, in fact, to be quite honest, if we truly stand up for what we believe, more than likely we'll be labeled with um, a term that's probably not considered complimentary, right? And, and I, I say that's important because there was a time, I, I believe, that that church, by going and attending a church to a certain extent, it, it got us this notch in a certain social status. Right down south, you southerners, it's not me. I'm a Yankee, okay? But you southerners, right? It's supposed to be the Bible Belt, right? And everyone goes to church on Sunday, right? And there was a day and age, like, that was just under, I mean, really, it was just understood. Like, you just kind of went and you did. But that's no longer the day and age that we live in. And, and I think if there's a, a positive in all this bad stuff that's happening, is it's, it's, it's allowing us to see those who really believe you know, those who, 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 like this Christian stuff, this faith, this, this Jesus is something that's, that is important to them. That there is some substance there to that. And, and so I, I think for us, um, in our own journey, I think for us as parents, as we're trying to raise our kids up, it's so important that we instill this idea that, listen, what you truly believe at your core, what you really believe is going to fuel the way you behave. And so we, 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 we left there. We left Antioch with Barnabas and Paul showing up. And, and they began to spend a year there just, just um, working with the people and discipling the people and helping the people figure out what's going on. And I mean, you know, and to me, again, one of my other favorite parts of the story last week was Barnabas shows up, and Barnabas is this guy that we, we met in Acts chapter 4, right before Ananias and Sapphira, right? right? I mean, he, he sells his property, gives all the stuff to the church. I mean, he's just this guy that's known. I mean, his name is based on his, his gifts of, of being hospitable, of, of being an encourager, right? And so Barnabas comes up, and, and, and he gets to this area, and, and all this stuff is still, like, we're still breaking down barriers, right? Like, it's still uncomfortable for the Jews with the Gentiles, their whole lives, they were brought up with, with we don't interact with each other. You know, we're not friends. We're not even friendly. We, we despise each other. And so all this is, is happening at a, at, a, at a pretty fast pace. And, and so, you know, they're, they're, many of them are trying, but still their, their upbringing and all those. It, was, it wasn't necessarily an easy task at first, but, but Barnabas rolls up there and, and he sees this. And rather than critique what's going on, rather than just try and correct all this Stuff he sees the rawness, the newness of what's happening with these Gentiles in Antioch, and he just encourages them. I mean, he celebrates with them, and, and he's just trying to remind them just to hold on to this, this freshness, this newness. Keep it, hold it, strangle it, don't let go. And then he spends a year just trying to disciple and help and, and maybe smooth the rough edges. And so that, after we have this really like, imp- like awesome, you know, 
ending to chapter 11, or yeah, chapter 11, the new church and all these exciting things. We, we see Paul. We, there's been a 10-year absence, and, we, and Paul shows back up. And, and then we get to, to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. And today we're going to do our best to, uh, to look at the, the first five verses. But before we do that, before we read those first five verses, you, you can look this up if you want. You can maybe jot it down in uh, your notes or, or whatever. We're going to talk about two disciples today, and, and both ultimately have different outcomes in this particular account. But, but one, one of the most famous disciples, one that we, many of us can empathize with, was Peter, right? The guy that acted first and then thought about it later, right? The guy that was continually tripping up and saying things he probably shouldn't have and having to go back and apologize. I mean, Peter, he's the one that most of us like, if, if we look at the disciples and say, who am I most like? Most of us, if we're honest, will be like, Peter, right? Well, well Peter, in, in first, first Peter, chapter 3, verse 12, he, he quotes David. Remember shepherd boy David? David and Goliath? From the Old Testament, from Psalms 34. But he, he in, in, in his account, in first Peter 3, 12, quoting Psalm 34, he says this, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I think that verse is important as we consider what we're going to see today, and then again next week as we kind of conclude this, the story kind of overlaps. It's important because, because right now, this is, this, Peter's not seeing this. First Peter, he's, he's remembering what's about to take place. And as he's remembering, he's, he's thinking about what David said, that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And again, today, like, think through that. As we look around, a lot of times we question that thought, don't we? Why are those who aren't righteous doing so well? And life can be so hard for us who maybe not classify ourselves as righteous but are trying. I mean, why do they get away with everything? Why, why are they just, why is it just so, looks like perfect for them? Why? And Peter, as he is looking back in his life, is reminded what David said. And he says, listen, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. All right, so Acts chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. Verse 1 says this, And about the time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, 
intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Let's pray. Lord, uh, this morning, in the next few moments, God, I pray that you help us to consider these five verses. Lord, I pray that you allow us to, to put ourselves in this account, in this story. Lord, I pray that you, Holy Spirit, begin to convict us or encourage us. Lord, show us areas of our lives that may need to be changed. Lord, for those who, who may not necessarily have to have the change in the life, but are struggling a bit, like, Lord, maybe this morning is, is a, a message that they leave feeling encouraged. Holy Spirit, I pray that you just work. God, I pray that this isn't built around my personality, that this isn't built around stories and illustrations and catchy statistics. But Lord, I pray that this morning that your word is our focal point. Jesus, I pray that you give me your heart, that you give me your words, you give me your passion. I pray that everything that we do, everything that we say brings honor and glory to you. God, work. Work in a mighty way. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So chapter 11, we, we end with this high, don't we? Like this new church, things are going great. We got revival. I mean, things are awesome. You know, Paul, we see him show back up on the scene and just it, the story looks great. But one of these things that we have to, we, we'll see and it's been a reoccurring theme already in the book of Acts is, is this idea of, of persecution and it, it, it rises up and it's not comfortable. It's not nice. It's not pretty. But the reality is, as we, as we see this story, we, we get back and we, we leave Antioch and we bounce back into Jerusalem. And in those first 11 chapters of, of the book of Acts, and really, I guess we can consider the 12th chapter here, Jerusalem's the focal point. I mean, it's home base. And all these people are leaving. They're shooting these, these spokes out to, to Samaria, to to you know, Joppa, to, to these different areas. But after this chapter, Jerusalem's no longer the focal point. Jerusalem's no longer the home base. Jerusalem's no longer the sending team. It goes back to Antioch. And so this is Luke, Luke who writes the book of Acts. This is kind of his last stop back here in Jerusalem, going back to see what's, what's going on. Uh, he's, he's helping us paint a picture and, and understanding that, that God is still present, that God is still working, that God is still sovereign, and God is still loving. And when we read this, it starts off in a not-so-happy way where Herod and maybe when you first read this, you, you, you instantly go back to the beginning of the book of Matthew and you remember the story of Jesus when Jesus was born. And you remember the Herod back then, right? The Herod who, who is 
um, very jealous and concerned that this new king might have been born. And so he, he sets this, this um, sends out all his Gestapo, if you will, to go out there and to kill all the infants. That's not the same Herod. Sometimes it's confusing as we read some of these things. That, that Herod is a, is a family name. That, that Herod that we read about there in the beginning of Matthew was actually this Herod's grandfather. Okay? And what's interesting about this is just to help us see the family dynamic. Right? The family of what this guy grew up in. His grandpa was that Herod who, who um, sent the people out to go kill the infants because of baby Jesus. Right? Well, his grandfather ultimately kills his own dad. That's not a good grandpa, is it? That's not the grandpa that we want watching our, grand, our kids at night, right? Like if you're going to have a sleepover, you're probably not going to send him to that grandpa's house, right? It's probably the other grandpa's house. But yeah, but, but so he kills, he actually kills um, Herod Agrippa, who's here, his actual father, but before, obviously before he is killed, Herod number three is born. And he wasn't, um, prior to this, doing real well in life. And in fact, at, at one point, he was imprisoned. Uh, he was kind of down and out. Um, but he had this school-age buddy that he grew up with that would eventually become the emperor. And because of that relationship, he's placed back into power. He's placed back into a position of authority. And he he's, um, struggles with that, what that looks like, because he's um, Jewish by, by birth, really. And again, when we talked about this idea of Judaism versus the Gentiles, um, it was more of a nationality than it was necessarily a religion. And so when it was convenient for him, he would follow those Jewish practices, Kind of like when in Rome, do as the Romans, right? That was kind of his lifestyle. Well, anyways, he comes back and he's trying to get those Jews back on his good side. And so he goes and he arrests James, one of the disciples. Now, this is a turning point because if we, as we recall, when we talk about Stephen before, when, when Stephen was, was captured, when he was put on trial, when Stephen was ultimately stoned, all these Hellenistic Jews, they left, many of them left, and they fled Jerusalem. But, but the disciples, they all stayed primarily in Jerusalem. And they didn't really mess with them too much. But to make a statement, Herod not only arrests James, but the Bible tells us that he was killed, that he had him killed by the sword um, some people, there's a little bit of a debate whether he was beheaded or just cut in half. Either way, it wasn't good. Now, this is a key player. This is a key individual. This is a well-known follower of Jesus. We've not given a whole lot of information. Like, boom, it, he's arrested, he's been killed, and that's where we're left. That's what we're holding on to. And then he goes and he, he, he arrests Peter. Again, arguably the most well-known of the disciples. Really the leader after Jesus ascends into heaven. You know, Peter pretty much takes up the mantle. And he's arrested. And it, it just so happens that, that this occurs during Passover. And so they weren't going to 
kill Peter during Passover, but they were going to hold him imprisoned until Passover was completed. But the intent was to do exactly what they did to James. You know, as I was reading through this this week, you know, I was, couldn't help but be reminded that, you know, in our own lives, we hit these very difficult patches, don't we? We, we hit, maybe it's uncertainty at work in your job and your vocation. Or, or, you know, you went through a season where things were going great. Maybe you were outperforming and everything was awesome. But, but the tides change. And, and, and there's, maybe there's no longer that guarantee that you think that you'll be able to retire from that particular company. Maybe, maybe it's in your marriage, the, the honeymoon period's over and the real work begins. You're on different islands, it feels like. And the kids are driving you this way or work's driving you that way. And then in the midst of it, you and your, your spouse are being pulled apart. And it's a struggle. I mean, maybe it's just your, your own faith walk where, where you just, it, just, it just feels hard. Like you just feel like God is distant. <clears throat> you're, you're trying to make attempts, but it just feels like it's just empty. It just feels like it's empty words coming out of your mouth. Or you're opening up your Bible and you just, you just see words on a page. And there's a lot of things that we can fill that blank in with, those, those struggles. When life gets difficult, when you seem, when you try to be doing everything that you're supposed to be doing, but it still gets hard. And so often in the midst of that, when it does get difficult, when it does get hard, our, or at least my natural reaction is either caught, start putting blame on God's shoulders or start questioning everything. Why in the world would you allow this to take place? I mean, think back here in this particular story with James. James, who's the half-brother of John, another disciple. Those two guys were there. Jesus himself called those two the sons of thunder. I mean, one minute he's there and now he's gone in a, a horrific way. And then you catch word that Peter's now arrested and they're preparing the same outcome for Peter. What in the world is going on? I, to me, I think we learn in this particular account two very important, very important principles or practices. One is this, that God's sovereign. Okay, that's a church word. What does that mean, sovereign? I feel like I, I, I sound very educated when I use that word sovereign. God is sovereign. What does that mean for us when we're in the valley? When, when we see life going astray. What, when, when, what is God is sovereign when, when we go to the doctors and they give us a report that isn't what we want to hear? What does God is sovereign mean when we start battling our children? What does God is sovereign mean then? Because God is sovereign, it's easy for us to grab a hold of and understand when life is perfect, when it's peachy. Right after we got the promotion, right? I mean, life is good. I mean, when it's good, then we can sit back and say, God is sovereign. Yeah. When we say God is sovereign, it means this God is all knowing, and God is in control. In the good times and the bad times, 
I've shared with you this on numerous occasions, and I, I share it often because it was a turning point in my personal life. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 have become my life verse, if you will. We got it on the screen here, and, and maybe it's a great reminder for us in the midst of this. It says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my way, or your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, what Isaiah, what's being said there in the book of Isaiah is this, like we have this view, and we can only see a certain amount. We have a certain perspective, right? There's only so far in the distance that we can see. But God, he, he sees it all. He, he has a better perspective. He's all-knowing. And so when we see these things that are bad, when, when we find these valleys of life that are hard, that are difficult, that quite honestly stink, you know, we, we bellyache about it, we complain about it, we don't like it. But in the midst of it, we have to understand that God has this understanding. Didn't catch him by surprise. I love in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 15, you have Abraham. Right? And Abraham, you know, he had already done, God had already come to him and told him that he needed to pack up, move away. And so he packed up, he moved away. He was following God's commands. Along there, later on, God says, listen, I'm going to give you a child, a son. And so he's all excited about that. 20 years pass, still no son. And God comes to Abraham again in a, in a vision. Abraham's asleep in his tent. And he starts telling him about this promise of this son. And in a really raw moment, Abraham just, in Chad's translation, says, enough, God. Like, I've done all these things that you wanted me to do. I, I mean, I, I packed up my family. We moved away from, from my homeland. I mean, I, you've been dangling this carrot for me, but I don't see it. I'm old now. My wife's old now. It, enough's enough. I'm done. And then God tells Abraham to get outside the tent. Because in Abraham's mind, inside that tent, that's as far as he could see was what was inside that tent. Just like us inside those, those difficult days. Like we're in the midst of those difficult days. All we can see is the difficulty right then and there. Right? That's all we can see. We can, we, a lot, sometimes we see a little flicker of light at the end of the tunnel, but so often we're focused in on the here, the now, and the bad, the ugly. But God takes Abraham outside of the tent, and he tells him to look up into the stars, into the sky. And that's almost what happens here in Isaiah. We, we get this little thing. We see a little difficulty. We see these, these moments. Now, it's not to belittle those difficulties because they're hard. But sometimes we have to step back and look up. Look up into the, into the stars. Look up into the sky and realize that God is sovereign. He is in control. He's not surprised. He's not sitting back, taking a time out, trying to figure out what he should do next. He's in control. But to me, one of the most impactful things, beyond just the, the reminder that God is in control, is to see the response of the people in Jerusalem. To see the response 
they had, once they found out about James, and once they got word of Peter being arrested, that verse 5, underline it, says this, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. See, underline that, earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. That, that word earnest, that Greek word could be translated as straining. It was a prayer of agony. Like they were all in. I mean, they went straight to prayer. One of my favorite books of the Bible is the book of James. And to me, James is almost like the New Testament equivalent to Proverbs. Because you have all these little nuggets of truths. And in that, there's so much about prayer. You know, some of it, uh, I was reminded in James chapter 1, verse 5, when it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. When we're in those difficult spots of life, what's the first thing we do? Where do we go? One of the things that I've loved seeing over the course of the last two years is the relationships that have been built in our small group ministry. In this particular, this year, Court and I have I've done our best to try and go to both groups just to see how God's working in those groups. And it's so cool to see now, listen, we're, we're studying and sometimes there's, there's um, great discussion about the particular study that we're going through or whatever. But what's so powerful to me is to see how um, people begin to open up and talk about real challenges in their lives. Things they're really struggling with. And then to see how people begin to pray for them. How, how people begin to, to check in on them and, and see how things are going. And we had last year and um, the locks gave a testimony before our small group started. One of the great um, things I think that happened at least in that particular small group last year was not that we rejoice in the struggles that the family went through, but it was so cool I, I, from a pastor perspective to see as, as they were going through this, as, they were, as there was these struggles with their children, to see um, that small group wrap their arms around them and pray for them. I mean, and not just pray, but I mean, I mean, you can ask Jessica and Justin, like they would get text, right? I mean, you would get people that would just genuinely like reach out wanting to know what was going on. Like to me, like that's what church is, guys. Like, I, to me, that we purposefully 
used the um, description of a faith family. Because we want people to come and feel like connection. It's, it's obvious. We can look around. We're not a large church, right? We had visitors last week that you guys moved from North Carolina, right? And they were part of um, a satellite church of Elevation Church, which is like a big mambo-jambo. Boom, big time. Like, that's not us. I mean, there's nothing wrong with those things. I mean, it, who knows where the Lord takes us? But I want us to understand, like, we try to be very intentional with being a family, being intimate, being close. Like, we want people to realize, like, when there's um, an issue in life, when there's a struggle in life, when, when things are, are hard, whatever it may be, like, they have family, they have a people that will, will come, that will gather with them, that, that will help in any way, but will first and foremost be praying for them. And that's where it all starts. Like, real, genuine prayers. Our prayer wall, we have several prayer requests there, ranging over all sorts of things. Medical needs, relational needs, financial needs. But I don't want it to be one of those things where it's an empty, I'll pray for you, response. But we're genuinely praying, just like the church did here. Like we're straining. Like, like when we hear like someone's child is going through all these hardships, like our hearts breaking as if it's our own child. That we're lifting up those prayers earnestly like it was our own child. Or if we hear of, of a marriage that's, that's struggling, it's not a matter of us sitting in a corner talking about it, but it's us sitting in a corner praying for it. Because that's what a church does. A church builds relationships with each other that points to Jesus. And that's what the church in Jerusalem does right here. I'm going to pray right now and I know I'm leaving us kind of on this cliff because we have one disciple dead and another one arrested. If you want to read ahead, you can. I'll give you a little heads up. Peter doesn't die. <laughs> All right? But again, I want us this morning to walk away, hopefully encouraged knowing that God is sovereign, God is in control, God is all-knowing. And that we're a church. We're a family, a faith family that prays for each other. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for all the things you've done for us. Lord, I thank you for this story. And although we, we only looked at five verses today, Lord, to me, it's a, it's a very practical reminder for us. And sometimes it's hard, Lord. It's, it's hard to, to remember that even in the midst of those difficult times that you are still in control. And that you didn't make a mistake. That you're all-knowing. And that our thoughts aren't your thoughts. 
And, and sometimes the things that we want so badly, you know we can't handle. And so out of your grace, you close doors. Or you shift us into other directions. Or sometimes you allow difficult things to come into our lives to remind us about you. That cause us to place our faith into you and to look to you. So Lord, I thank you for your sovereignty. And Lord, I pray for us a little church plant in northeast Tallahassee. But you allow us to continue towards this path of being a faith family. To not getting lost, but to connect, to build relationships that point to you. Relationships with people that we know when, that when life does get hard and challenges arise, that we know we have people. I mean, somebody more than just a mom or a dad or a family member, but, but we have genuine people in our lives here at church. And Lord, as we tell our kids, we tell our youth all the time, make your church friends your best friends. God, may, may we as adults follow the same principle. Do we, do we find family? And we look to you. That we draw to you. That we earnestly pray to you. So Holy Spirit, I pray you just remind us of that today. It's in your son's beautiful, precious, holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Our goal at Redemption Hill is to see souls saved and lives changed. If the Holy Spirit spoke to you today and you made a decision, or maybe you have a question or a comment, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at chad, C-H-A-D, at rh-church.com If you don't have a a regular church home, we would love for you to consider visiting us. You can go to our website, rh-church.com or find us on Facebook for directions. Until next time.